When a mighty oak falls, the forest shudders. The first week of January, the first search committee meeting, Nancy, in her wisdom, asked each member of the search committee to go around the room and to respond to two questions. What brought you to Fourth Avenue? Why'd you come and why'd you stay? What kept you here? It was Mark or, or Steve, I forget, who started us off. He said his first visit, he was warmly greeted and welcomed in the foyer by a particular greeter who made him feel, he said on his first visit, that he was coming home. And then he said he returned two or three weeks later and that same man in the foyer greeted him. Only this time, the man in the foyer greeted him by name. They were here to stay. The greeter was Kyle Bills. And so we went around the room and half the folks in this Zoom meeting mentioned Kyle by name, why they came and why they're here, why they stayed, and everyone everyone to a person mentioned the inclusive family-like atmosphere of fourth avenue and it seemed to me witnessing this that this man kyle bills was the face of fourth avenue certainly the welcoming presence of fourth avenue and so a mighty oak has fallen and the forest shudders Nadine and Matthew, Leah and Anthony, the grief that a family experiences is deep and it is unique. And in one of his letters, the one actually that was included in scripture, the apostle Paul wrote to a church suffering the loss of beloved members of their family. And he said in the context of their loss, he said, grieve, Grieve, but not as those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that God will unite us with those who have gone before. Upon his return, Jesus' resurrection is the reason for our hope. And these are the weeks of Lent, has been mentioned, the weeks leading into Easter celebration where everyone, it seems, is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We, of course, celebrate that on a weekly basis. But in today's sermon, we'll stay one more week in the world that is envisioned in John's Gospel, where we've already met Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and talked about being lifted up. This morning, we'll live in the world that John envisions concerning the resurrection. In the Christian faith and in our lives, the resurrection is a big deal. It seems to be a, it seems to demand a big, huge box in that congregational survey. Do you or do you not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Paul's position seems to demand it. He says, I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I also received, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the appearances of Jesus. In fact, Paul says in that same context, if there is no resurrection, he says, our faith is empty, empty. 
In another place, Paul will say that we unite. When we're, when we're baptized into Christ, as Jesus died and was buried and then rose to a newness of life, so too, when we are baptized, we're buried with Christ and then rise to a newness of life. It's a big deal. But John, when he talks about the resurrection, doesn't ask the question, do you believe? He asks the question, how do you believe? And so he presents us with some snapshots, some pictures, images for us to look at, to stare at, to absorb, to respond to that question, how do you believe? Three images in John's gospel. Here's the first one. Jesus has appeared to his 12 disciples, I should say 10 of his disciples after his death. Judas is gone and Thomas is absent when he appears. Here's how John says it. Thomas, one of the 12, also called Didymus, Didymus, which means the twin. Thomas, also called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my fist into his side, I won't believe. Eight days later, the disciples once again are inside. This time, Thomas is with them. Though the doors are shut, Jesus appears. And he says, peace be to you. And then he says to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and don't be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, And then Jesus says, because you've seen, do you believe? Blessed are they who have never seen and yet believe. Thomas says he needs some physical proof, something he could literally and figuratively get his hands on. Thomas is asking for something that you and I have oftentimes said that we would like to have, and that is to be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And I don't know where it came from, but you and I, somewhere along the line, came up with this nasty little nickname that we gave to Thomas. We called him Doubting Thomas. We made fun of him, he's Doubting Thomas. Yeah, don't be a Doubting Thomas. Rest fully on his promise with saying Doubting Thomas. Probably because Thomas articulates what we have felt. We've been a little bit hard on him. Perhaps we've been hard on Thomas because all he requests is an experience, a touch, a little proof, something he can put his hands on. But I want you to look at Thomas. What do you see? Look at his posture. Look at his face. Look into his eyes. When I look closely at Thomas, you know who I see? I see myself. I also see a little bit of you. I don't know if I read that language right when I'm reading, when I read Thomas's com- comments to the, to, the, to the 10, when he said, 
Did he say it with protest and resistance? Unless I put my fingers in his hand, and unless I put my hand in his, in his side, I won't believe. Or did he say it this way? Unless I put my fingers in his hand, unless I put my hand in his side, I, I won't believe. Winter storm, that Wednesday, ice growing on the elm that looms over the house. And we're making promises. God, if you get us out of this, envisioning an ambulance and the news team there before dawn reporting on the elm that fell on the house. You keep us safe. You heal our child. We're desperate. We're asking God for something tangible, something we can touch and see and taste. And sometimes, sometimes God stoops to our level, and we've seen it before, the child in trouble, a spouse in the hospital. We're broken, and God gets us out of trouble. He stoops. He stoops sometimes to our level, and he protects us, and he makes us well, and he gets us out. Look again at that picture of Thomas. Do you see Jesus intervening? God with us at that level. He's helping our trust to grow, to develop, to feed, to nurture our faith. Jesus comes to Thomas at that level. Reach here your finger, he says. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas responds with worship. And that's how faith grows. Maybe we should have not given him the nickname that we gave him, Doubting Thomas. Maybe gone with the nickname that John gives him. Didymus, the twin, you and me, his twin, we're a lot like him. Or maybe you're like somebody else in the photograph. Mary, for example. This is from the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped, and she looked inside the tomb, and there she saw two angels dressed in white, one sitting at the head of where the body had been and one at the feet. And she says to the angels, where is he? Have you taken away my Lord? After they had asked, why are you weeping? And when she said that, she turns, not looking now in the tomb, but outside, and who should she see now but Jesus standing there? Only she doesn't know that it's Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. And she says to Jesus, do you know where he's at? Have you taken him? After he had said, woman, why are you weeping? What's wrong? Who are you seeking? And then Jesus says, Mary. And when he says her name, Mary, she says, Rabbi, which means teacher, and clings to him. To which he says, I've not ascended yet to my father. Don't cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. And so John says, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So look at the picture of Mary. Her faith is dealt with and expressed in a very different way. Look at her. 
She's despondent. She's crying. Mary happens upon the tomb where Jesus' body has been laid, and it's empty. But the, but the empty tomb only makes her sadder. She assumes somebody's stolen the body. And then two angels appear, and they can't break her sorrow. And then Jesus appears and speaks to her, and he doesn't stir her faith. Can you imagine? Two angels, an empty tomb, and the voice of Jesus, and it does nothing. What works for Mary is when she hears Jesus say her name, Mary. And that's when she comes to faith. Scripture affirms that our faith comes from the spoken word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Or all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, and training in righteousness, and so on. And I've also heard, maybe you have too, that instead of those broad, general statements, for God so loved the world, and so on, you put your name in there. For God so loved Sarah, or God so loved Mary, that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe, you won't perish or he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and so on. But rather, he has told you, Richard. He's told you, Robert, what is good. And what does the Lord require but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Faith comes when we hear our name being called. Look again at the photograph. That's you. In the past, you've entertained angels unawares. In the past, you've mistaken the, an empty tomb for grave robbers. In the past, you failed to hear the familiar sound of Jesus' voice. Still, he calls your name. And then there's hope, hope for the living and the realization that there's work yet to be done, a work of service. Now take a look at the last photograph. It's a photograph that John takes of himself when he and Peter are racing to the tomb. They're running together, John tells us, when John runs faster than Peter and arrives first to the tomb. And John, stooping in and looking, sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he doesn't go in. Peter catches up and then he goes inside the tomb and he sees the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth that had been on his head, not lined with the linen wrappings, but rolled up into place by itself. So John, who had come first to the tomb, enters, and he sees, and he believes, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. For years, and years, and years, and even to this morning, many people, including myself, have read this text exactly the opposite of what it says. I've read the text this way, that John looked into the tomb, saw the burial clothes that had been all mixed up with the ointments and spices and so on, and when the body was removed, you know, resurrected, it left a cocoon-like shape there where you could identify that there was the body of Jesus now gone. Makes perfect sense. But that's not what John says. He says that they saw, they believed, but they did not understand. It's faith seeking understanding. Believing, though not perfectly understanding. Believing that God is gracious, but not understanding. Believing that God hears our prayers, hears everybody's prayers, but not understanding. Believes that God forgives sins, 
but not understanding, believes that God comes to us in our moments of pain and grief that we don't understand. Earlier in John's gospel, he promises the Holy Spirit, Jesus does. He says the Spirit will guide and give direction and purpose to his church. And without understanding the mechanics, believing that God is at work, beyond, far beyond any talents and hopes and vision that we might have, far beyond any evil intent from the outside. So John asks us, how do you believe in the resurrection? And we see ourselves somewhere in that photograph, pleading for physical evidence, pleading for intervention, reorienting our faith from a focus on the past to a focus on the present, knowing that there's work yet to be done, believing without understanding. We believe in a resurrected Christ who continues to live and intervene in our lives, who wishes to nurture us and love us and grow our faith. How we believe is as critical as the fact that we do believe. In four short weeks, Easter will arrive, this grand holiday with family gatherings and meals and new clothes, pictures of children in their Easter outfits, the frilly dresses, the boys in their little bow ties and suspenders, and the Easter egg hunts and the chocolate bunnies and the basket of candies and the decorated eggs. And you put a microphone in front of a guy out on the sidewalk and say, what does Easter mean to you? And he'll say, well, it means warmer, wet weather. It means that the flowers are breaking ground, baseball games on cool afternoons. Easter is a holiday, of course, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was executed on Friday and rose again on Sunday. And that event, the fact of his resurrection, had such an impact on the early church that they who through the synagogue had for centuries been worshiping on Saturday, you know, the day of rest, the Sabbath, changed their day of worship to celebrate the resurrection every week on Sunday. It's not Easter bunnies and the cross, like it isn't Santa Claus on the Advent candle, obnoxious as all of that is, but it's not just a simple yes or no. The question is, how do you believe and where will that faith be taking you? A mighty oak has fallen and the forest shudders. The apostle Paul wrote to us and he said to us, grieve, but don't grieve as those who have no hope. For we believe, perhaps like Thomas, perhaps like Mary, perhaps like John, that as Jesus died and rose again, so we will be reunited with our loved ones in Christ. For Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply, hallelujah, hallelujah. Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids his rise. Christ has opened paradise. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.